you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The chronology of 14 events includes any number of people whose death, for one reason or another, is inexplicable. This may include the phenomena of spontaneous human combustion, bizarre accidents, murder simply not recognized as such, as well as other inexplicable deaths. In the first installment of this series, I dealt with four unexplained cases which may be a little bit less mysterious than usually presented. In the second, I will discuss three more. Two, the 1942 death of New Yorker Alan King Foster and the 1945 case of Pittsburgh electrician Rudolf Bogovich have possible solutions. The last is the 1956 death of Harold Hall of California. Often cited, like the Lillian Green case discussed in the last episode, as a case of spontaneous combustion. This is episode 93, Death Most Mysterious, Part 2. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. King Foster Jr. was born in 1906 in Cornwall, Connecticut, to a Baptist minister and his wife. He attended medical school in Chicago. He then moved to New York City, where he soon became a surgeon operating at both the Broad Hospital on Broad Street and the Postgraduate Hospital on 20th Street. In 1935, he married Elsa Margarita Nilsson, and in 1939, the two had a daughter, Margaret. January 12, 1942 was seemingly a fairly average day. Dr. Foster left his apartment at 70 East 96th Street on New York's Upper East Side around noon, telling his wife he had an appointment to meet with psychologist Lucian Humphrey at a restaurant on Park Avenue for lunch. Humphrey was to later confirm that Dr. Foster had, indeed, kept this appointment, but that in his opinion, Foster was acting strangely. It's unclear what Foster did in the time immediately following his leaving the restaurant. The next definite sighting was at the Hotel Dorset on East 54th Street at 5.15pm, calling at the apartment of Professor George Lakofsky. According to Lakofsky's wife, our bell rang, and when I opened the door, there was Dr. Foster. He held up his watch and said, I'm late, it's quarter past twelve. The hands of his watch did point to a quarter past twelve, but it was only a quarter past five by actual time. He had no hat or coat on, and he stared at us wildly. Then he left as suddenly as he came. It was only about 15 minutes later that Dr. Foster was spoken to by Patrolman Lawrence Walsh near the corner of West 55th Street and 6th Avenue. 
While Foster hadn't actually carried out any offense, he was in a disoriented state. Officer Walsh also, also thought it was odd that he was wandering without coat or hat in the middle of a New York winter. Foster seemed to be very disoriented and confused, and the policeman had him sent to Roosevelt Hospital for observation. After an examination there, it was determined that he was mentally unwell, and so he was sent to the psychiatric unit at Bellevue Hospital. Five days later, he was dead. It was said that Foster was ranting about death rays in disguises when admitted. He was said to be a violent inmate and needed to be forcibly fed. Around 3 o'clock on the afternoon of January 18th, he was taken to a room for therapy. His wife Elsa spoke with him at this time, as did some unnamed friend. After a bit, Elsa went down to the front desk to arrange for a transfer, and it was while she was here, at 3.30pm, she was told her husband had died. In hindsight, one wonders what Elsa suspected. Her arranging for Alan to be transferred to another hospital, pushing for an autopsy immediately upon death, and her later dogged persistence to discover the cause of death, certainly seems to me to suggest she had some reason to suspect something. Was it just the generally bad reputation of Bellevue, particularly the psychiatric ward? Or had she seen something in particular which made her feel that her husband was better off somewhere else? An autopsy was performed by Dr. Philip Goldstein and showed that Dr. Foster had suffered three fractures of the larynx. It is my opinion that the patient died within a matter of minutes following the receipt of his injury, he wrote, implying that whatever had occurred, it had been almost immediately after Mrs. Foster left the room. It was likewise felt that the injuries were consistent with what could be expected from so-called mugging, often used to subdue out-of-control patients. Dr. Carter Colbert, the director of a psychiatric unit, said that Foster had displayed a hoarseness of voice a day previous to his death. An assistant district attorney, Jacob Grumet, said that according to earlier records from Roosevelt Hospital, he didn't have the injuries when admitted to Bellevue. Although referred to as an assistant to Nikola Tesla on certain web pages, there's no evidence Foster even knew the man. Mrs. Foster did, though, say that her husband was fascinated by the notion of a death ray, something Tesla definitely had been working on. Foster had become obsessed with the idea that the so-called multiple wave generator, a device invented by George Lakovsky, could be modified and used as a weapon. Mrs. Foster also claimed that her husband did have an appointment with Professor Lakovsky at 4 o'clock on January 12th, and, to me anyway, seemed to be implying that the Lakovskys were covering something up by denying an appointment. Professor George Lakovsky was a Russian engineer and an inventor, as well as an author of several books. His multiple wave generator was an electric device, meant to manipulate the electrical charge generated by the human body to fight disease. The machine was once used by hospitals worldwide, but has fallen out of favor. Lakovsky himself died in September 1942, after being hit by a car. And that's the extent of what is really known about the death of Alan King Foster. It hasn't ever been determined for certain what took place. It's almost certain that the death resulted from his treatment at the hospital, though whether from deliberate abuse or some sort of accident isn't clear. One facet brought up in some of the news accounts is that in 1938, there had been a similar death in the psychiatric ward of Bellevue. 
27-year-old Angeline Guidi died in the ward on May 2nd, and an autopsy by Dr. Thomas Gonzalez indicated death by asphyxiation, not deliberate strangulation or anything like that, but rather the airway being obstructed. Senator John McNabbo pushed for a grand jury investigation which apparently never materialized. Once again, the death of Mrs. Guidi hasn't ever been cleared up, short of a finding that Bellevue was not directly responsible. Rudolf Bogovic was born on April 27, 1894, in Vozdansko, Croatia, to Frank Bogovic and his wife Maria. Though ethnically Croatian, he was technically Austrian, since the Kingdom of Croatia Slavonia was a sector of the Austrian Hungarian Empire. When he was seven, his father came to America for work, with Maria Bogovic and the children coming over three years later. The family seems to have initially settled in Clarksburg, West Virginia, and it was there that Rudolph married Catherine Bear in 1916. Soon after, the couple moved to Turtle Creek, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh, to be nearer to Catherine's parents, who lived in nearby Churchill. Almost immediately upon moving there, Rudolph was employed at the Westinghouse Electric Plant in East Pittsburgh. He and Catherine eventually had three children. Fast forward to the 1940s, and Westinghouse is working as a contractor with the U.S. military, developing radar systems, improved gyroscopic stabilization for tank guns, and other aids to the war effort. Rudolph, who had, been, who had initially been employed as a machine operator, by this time worked in the shipping department helping to crate up machinery to be sent to buyers. Here, on Saturday, January 6, 1945, 51-year-old Rudolf Bogovich died under grisly circumstances, the cause of which was never determined. That evening, he was working with five or six others crating up a piece of machinery in the room of the factory used to assemble electric generators. Deciding that he needed to get some more material for use in the packaging, he laid down his tools and climbed down the ladder. One of the co-workers up on the platform described what happened next. Then, before he had gone over a half dozen yards, a sheet of flame seemed to burst out of his body, and there was a terrific roar. When we got to him, he was too far gone to say anything. There wasn't any machinery or anything close to him, and nobody closer than we were. Rudolf Bogovich had been ripped apart by the blast. It was later judged that he most likely had died instantly. Investigators found what was left of a small container, which apparently had been filled with gunpowder, among the man's remains. The container, which seemed to be of a waxed cardboard, had two twisted wires attached. The fingertips of his left hand were blown off, although the palm of his hand remained untouched. This seemed to indicate that the device had been held in Bogovich's hand. Others weren't so sure, though, and thought the device may have been a vest pocket instead. County Detective Chief Joseph Stack was quoted in a, in a Sunbury Daily Item article from January 9th that the authorities were not ruling out any possibilities as to what might have been going on here. From almost the outset, two FBI agents were on the scene aiding the local police. The case was viewed as a vitally important one since Westinghouse was a war contractor, after all, and the notion that it might have been a sabotage attempt couldn't be ruled out. It was soon determined that the remains of an explosive device that had been found 
were likely those of a crude bomb constructed from what seemed to have been the outer casing of a common flashlight battery, which apparently had been filled with gunpowder and topped with a twisted wires, which seemed to be some sort of electric detonator. It was revealed a, le- a week later that a search of Bogovich's home at 1701 Beach Street in Turtle Creek had turned up evidence that he himself may have made the explosive which killed him. Electric detonators similar to the wires attached to the battery were found, as were a number of 30 caliber rifle shells emptied of gunpowder. But as to the explosion itself, it was theorized that it actually was not a sabotage attempt. It was thought that the explosive itself was not strong enough to be very effective in that regard. And besides, the section of the plant in which Bogovich died was engaged in the construction of generators, which were fairly heavy machinery, and it was felt that that this wasn't the most likely spot for would-be saboteurs anyway. Was it an elaborate suicide? Possibly. Catherine Bogovich said that her husband seemed to be fine that day, and as did the co-workers he had been working with. But of course, as we know, seeming fine and being fine are two different things. And it's at this point that the death of Rudolf Bogovich quietly leaves the papers, apparently without headway being made. It re-enters the public eye in 1954, when McCarthyism and the hunt for hidden communist agents was at its height. Harry Allen Sherman, a lawyer from Pittsburgh, testified on March 4th of that year before the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, at the time investigating pro-communist ties among members of the United Electrical Workers. Sherman's testimony described what was clearly a reference to the Bogovich death, saying, The Communist Party at the time took credit for the job they did on a man who was going to do some talking to the government. IUE was going to organize, beginning to organize, in the plant, and they even told how they did it. The Communist put in his lunchbox a bomb that could be detonated by the magnetic waves of the generating plant where they knew he would have to pass on his way to his job. They said that this was what they were going to do to others who would talk. Sherman's accounting of the event is odd, however. First of all, the timing is wrong. He said the event took place in 1948, during the revelation of those communist ties, rather than three years before. And if the timing of the death was wrong, the motive behind it must likewise be questioned. He said it was while the IUE was beginning to organize, and implies that Bogovich was murdered by communist agents. But if the actual death took place three years before the events that supposedly precipitated it, well, it doesn't seem quite likely that's what happened, does it? The next year, however, fact is that a number of suspected communists were fired from the East Pittsburgh plant of Westinghouse. The four men were all longtime employees, being Harold K. Briney, employed for 37 years, Theodore Wright, employed for 30 years, William L. Heaston, employed for 24 years, and Joseph Slater, employed for 13. So was the death of Rudolf Bogovich a murder? If so, why was there evidence he had been building explosives? I know I've said several times about cases I might revisit, but the death of Rudolf Bogovich will probably go to the top of that list. Since the FBI was involved in the investigation, I've put in a Freedom of Information Act request to them for any records they might have of the investigation, so hopefully I might get more details. One specific question I've asked about is about the identities of the co-workers Bogovich was with immediately prior to death. 
who weren't identified in the newspapers, but likely are in investigative reports. Given the alleged link to communism theorized later, I'd be very interested to know if any of the men fired from Westinghouse were among those. Another is what the location of the explosive actually was, if it had ever been determined for sure, as there was disagreement about whether it had been handheld or in a pocket. On April 30, 1956, several California dailies carried the story of Harold Jackson Hall of Benicia, a 58-year-old employee of the Shell Refinery in nearby Martinez, Hall's death is, like Lillian Green's in the last episode, often chalked up as a case of spontaneous combustion. On the evening of Saturday, April 28th, Hall was sitting on the porch of his apartment building at 141 East F Street in Benicia, talking with his landlord, Sam Massenzi. Accounts vary as to whether that name was Massenzi or Masney but a search of ancestry reveals that there, act- there was a Sam Massenzi living in Benicia at the time, who was approximately the same age as Hall. I've assumed this to be the guy. Hall and the landlord made plans to go to a movie together. Then Hall returned to his apartment and Massenzi to his. However, when Hall failed to show up a half hour later, when the two planned to leave, Massenzi went up to his apartment. He found the man lying on the floor of the apartment, extremely badly burned. The front of his shirt was scorched, but there was little damage to the back of his clothing. When found, when found, Hall was unconscious, and a doctor attending to the man had to perform a tracheotomy so that he could breathe. Despite the doctor's efforts, however, Hall died early the next morning, never regaining consciousness. Police Chief Romeo Lavezzo and Fire Chief Tom Geifels investigated the accident which befell Harold Hall, but they found nothing to show what caused the blaze. The burns on the man and his clothes indicated that it had originated in the front, whatever the cause. They sent the clothing to a laboratory in Sacramento for analysis. Another account appearing on May 2nd indicated that Hall's death might have been due to flammable fluid used to clean his jacket. An unmarked bottle sitting on the kitchen table in front of the body held some of the fluid, and it was judged that Hall hadn't managed to get all of it off his clothes, and it somehow became ignited. Whether this was the truth or not, here the story vanishes. Of the main source books discussing spontaneous combustion, only Larry Arnold's Ablaze mentions the the Hall death, and with good reason, since it appears there was little spontaneous about it. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at ForgottenDarknessPodcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.